0: i'm jeff gibson
1: and i'm shanna paxton
0: and we are the The movie Movie lovers Lovers. welcome to the official podcast of the gibson review in every episode we kick it off with the weekend review what tv shows and movies we've been watching since the last episode then we move on to the main event which is typically a main topic of conversation or a main review Then finish off with Film Faves, our 12 respective picks for our favorite movies around a particular topic, often marching backwards through time. In this episode, the main event was going to be Jojo Rabbit review, but we had a little bit of a pickle, uh, as I was afraid of. A couple weeks back, I looked at IMDB's release schedule for Jojo Rabbit, and it said... It was going to open on, I think, the 17th of October. It said 17th of October. Nothing else. Then comes 17th of October, and... There's nothing. (laughs) All my movie apps and everything are telling me, you don't get to watch this till Halloween at the earliest. So, uh, release schedule mishap. Apparently, Jojo Rabbit was on limited release. So, we had to come up with a plan B. So... Our main event in this episode will be a look at the 10th anniversary of 2009. Looking at the films that came out in 2009 and what sort of impact that year has had on us so far. That will be interesting. And then film phase will finally be the nail in the coffin of the decade of the 80s. We'll be counting down our favorite movies from the 80s. All of which are available to stream on a subscription service. So this will be interesting. But I'm going to kick us off first with my weekend review. There's a couple things I've seen. I saw way back round uh, the night after we recorded the last episode, midsummer. The latest Ari Haster film from earlier this year, I finally caught up with this thing, that stars Florence Pugh as a girlfriend to Jack Rainer. She went through a sort of a family trauma at the beginning of the film, and she tags along with he and his friends to a trip to Sweden to visit the town that one of the friends is from. Uh, things don't go well so this is a notable film first of all because one of the the typical tropes of actually not tropes but tools i would say of the horror genre is darkness it is very hard to think of if any at all horror films that do not take place at night take or utilize darkness in some way this film is quite different because it is mostly taking place in daylight it has to do with where the town is in relation to the equator essentially and uh so anyway so that's one of the most notable things about this film it's very interesting other notable things about this film is the level of detail in the costumes and the culture that's created in this little town and the Ari Aster has proven himself to be really great at building tension. I talked about Hereditary a few episodes ago and how that unsettled me from minute one and just kept a real consistent level of uncomfortableness that just kind of ratcheted it up, right? This movie is not terribly dissimilar, it does like take you know till they get to the town for things to start to get a little unsettling, but he just ratchets up that tension you know as the story goes along. This is a two and a half hour film, so he has plenty of room to play <laughs> in it, and it does have an interesting emotional journey. The problem there are problems with the film uh, that left it off of my. 10 best horror films of the decade list which you can find at thegibsonreview.com and it is probably probably is deserving of an honorable mention but part of it is i do think danny's journey the main character by florence Pugh, her journey is sagged a bit in the second act which affects the impact of the end it's it's almost like it's her emotional journey is kind of forgotten to an extent in the second act because they're spending so much time on the customs of this village and stuff and also, like, once things do, like, kind of get fucked up, like, people stay in situations that most would not. Most people would be like, okay, we're leaving. And, and this, like, in order for the plot to continue, it really feels like that mechanic is really felt. So it's like, well, like, these people are just purposely staying in these situations. Or, if not, they'll fail to react appropriately to like people going missing or something. It's like, oh, that's weird. They're not around. You know, it's it's yeah. Like it's there's some there's some flaws. Um, it's a very interesting film. I get why it's gotten a lot of attention. Ari Aster is definitely building himself up as a great talent in this genre. He's someone to keep an eye out for. But Midsummer I give probably a 7 out of 10 just because of those flaws that it has. Otherwise, it would be a masterpiece. It would be It's it's a pretty darn good film and worth checking out.
1: Is it something that I could get through? Yes. Oh, okay, cool.
0: Yeah, knowing you, yeah, definitely. Probably more than I could. <laughs> uh, but it is long, so brace so yourself. So is
1: it more about the human horror or is it paranormal? Yeah. No. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. The other thing I've been catching up with is I got really curious about DC animated movies. You know, DC Comics and Warner Brothers have been making these animated movies ever since the early 90s, since the creation of Batman animated series, uh, early the to mid 90s. The best mid-90s. series of, of fantastic Batman ever. Yeah, absolutely. And so I got kind of curious, like, well, what are the good ones? What are the bad ones? They can't all be gold, right? And um, so I looked at a bunch of lists online and, you know, various opinions, but some consistent picks. And I was like, you know what? I bet if I kind of averaged out all these picks, I'd be able to create one master kind of somewhat factual definitive list of the best DC animated movies. So I did that and... Uh, I, my plan was to really kind of go through this next year, but I kind of got uh, had some time, so I got ahead of myself. Uh, the list kind of bottoms out with Justice League, Throne of Atlantis, tops out with Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, which is really kind of the first DC animated movie of this kind. Uh, so I watched a few of them so far. I saw... Batman, Superman movie, world's finest, because we owned a copy. I remember really being impressed and liking it. This time I watched it, and I kind of thought, like, the first half is the best, but it's kind of boring otherwise. Like, there's a whole lot of conflict with robots that you think, well, Superman, he should just be able to use his laser vision and take care of those robots but he doesn't necessarily like it's an excuse to have like people punching things essentially so that's all right it's i scored a five out of ten the worst was batman the killing joke
1: i would have expected that to be good
0: well if you know the source material the killing joke yeah yeah, sure but the first third they basically like if you were to just adapt the killer joke itself, apparently the runtime would only be like 45 minutes. So they're like, well, we need to fill this out a little bit. And so what they decided to do, at least the screenwriter Brian Azarello, who's a great comic book writer in his own right, he apparently decided to make 30-minute filler story that has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the movie that involves Batgirl. And it goes in some directions I understand why fans would kind of call and consider blasphemous. But the biggest problem is it feels like a completely disconnected story and it has nothing to do with the rest of the film. And then when you do get to the killing joke, it just kind of feels a little hollow overall. It doesn't have the impact that the book did. So I thought that was pretty poor, uh, pretty bad. And I scored that a 4 out of 10. And then I watched Justice League Dark, which is fine because it has all these interesting characters you don't normally see. Zantanna, uh, John Constantine, Swamp Thing, Dead Man. Uh, it's interesting enough just for that adventure. But the actual central conflict I thought was fine, but not that great, not that interesting uh, villain. So I, I would score that about the same as the Batman Superman movie, a 5 out of 10 and then I saw Batman and Harley Quinn, which is reputed to be pretty bad, but I actually thought was enjoyable. It's really funny. It's extremely outlandish. It's it's very adult in its humor. It does stumble a little bit, and it does feel somewhat inconsequential on the whole. But it's actually a pretty enjoyable animated film, Batman and Harley Quinn. I gave that one a 6 out of 10. And then we watched together Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Mm-hmm. Which definitely is so far the crown jewel of the DC animated films. It has a nice, tight script to it. Uh, great uh, ties to Batman's origin when he, when Bruce Wayne was first trying out as a vigilante, and also you got these like present day, quote unquote, villain who has a really cool character design, and like he's bumping off crime bosses and stuff. And what's going on with this phantasm character? still a very effective and very cool film. I gave that one an eight out of ten. Uh, did you have any thoughts about that one?
1: i I enjoyed it. i I thought it was really interesting. I really enjoyed the story from beginning to end. I thought I knew who the bad guy was and I didn't. so that was kind of that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, was,
0: especially for you because you're usually good at predicting these things.
1: yeah, usually. So, good on them. And I, I, you know, I really appreciate this animated style of Batman. Mm -hmm. So, I'm always going to watch whatever they throw me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even, like, the film features the Joker. And at first, it's like... like, I was
1: so excited to see him. You
0: were. See, I was going to say, it feels like, well, okay, like, you have this bigger picture story and we're just going to throw the joker in there but actually he's actually his appearance in the film is justified in within and weaved it within the fabric of the story which actually i find impressive
1: yeah i really liked it and you know when joker appeared i just started giggling <laughs> and was really happy because i absolutely love how they animate the joker in that show yeah where he's got this really weird crazy there's no way you could do this in real life body movements Mm. and you know he's just an animated character so how scary can he be well he is yeah he can be pretty menacing. yeah you know because of that smile because of you know things that he'll say and because of all the uneasiness that the other characters around him have yeah so i really i loved seeing him
0: yeah. yeah, so that's where I'm at so far. i probably got like a dozen other animated films to watch. They've, I know they've made like, I don't know, two, three dozen animated films, but boiling it down to this master list that I created based on all these other lists of what are the best ones, I probably have like a dozen or so to go. I'll probably venture more into that next year. Maybe I'll dabble a little bit here and there. But, I think um, it's
1: really funny that you did this after watching The Joker.
0: It's a huge coincidence, I will tell you. It is a coincidence. But anyway, so that's DC animated movies uh, in a nutshell of what I've been seeing there. But Shanna, uh, we've been watching a few things as well, starting with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, a little-known Martin Scorsese film, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is from 1974. And stars, uh, I think, Ellen Burstyn as a woman who's in a very kind of unhappy stock lifestyle. And her husband dies all of a sudden. So she packs up her son and takes him on a road trip to Monterey, California. With dreams of actually pursuing this singing career that she put on hold when she first got married. Shanna, what did you think about this, this uh, unusual little nugget by Martin Scorsese?
1: I really liked it. I enjoyed watching the relationship between the mom and the son. It's a very odd relationship. It's the kind that's very jokey mm-hmm. and trying to make light of the situation around them mm-hmm. by making their relationship the thing that'll survive anything Mm -hmm. so she's kind of got this parenting style of well in the grand scheme of things that isn't such a bad thing so they have a lot of fun together yeah until he pushes it too far He, he
0: being the son largely because she's given him so much freedom right
1: so now he doesn't know where the boundary is. Right. So it, it all makes sense where where this goes, mm-hmm. and so it's really funny in a really peculiar way. Mm. I mean, it, it's not like it's not like the kid is a psychopath, you know. He's just he doesn't know where the boundary. No,
0: are. yeah, he's just socially he he really talks out of turn a lot of times, you know, socially. And, and at and... the same
1: time, we don't want to take that away from our kids. Like we we want them to be honest. Yeah, you know, he, we don't want them to lose that.
0: I guess he just doesn't have much discipline in his life per se. So, he talks back sometimes in ways that he shouldn't. But the the interesting thing about this film for me is how feminist it is. You have this woman who goes on a journey of self-rediscovery and she tries to be fairly independent. Uh, she's a single mom, which I don't know how often you saw that back then, and in in, in, well, in, in, and in kind such a way that making she, it work. And she's not judged for being a single yeah. mom,
1: but she's not judged for being a single mom because her husband died. There's a difference.
0: You're, you're, sure, you're right about that. You're right about that. But also, she has these dreams and like other men characters she runs into. Like there's there's there is. A variety of male characters that she involves herself with, and not all of them are unsupportive of her own dreams, which is pretty cool. Chris Christopherson and Harvey Keitel, should be noted, also star in this film.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm just remembering now because we watched it about two weeks ago. I'm just remembering, but there's a, you're right. There's a lot of men that surround her, and then mm-hmm. when women do begin to surround her, it's very fun and quirky. Yeah, yeah. It's not like an ordinary female relationship.
0: Yeah, and also a young Jodie Foster has a bit part in this film too, which is interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed what all these characters were talking about and Mm. what they were doing. Yeah. Even at times some of it was difficult, but I really enjoyed the dialogue and how everything was delivered.
0: Did you enjoy it enough for it to become one of your favorite Scorsese films?
1: Well, I think my favorite's Wolf of Wall Street, right? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is so, very nothing different. Can, <laughs> very nothing can different beat the
1: out, like the outrageousness. I, th- I think I like and the outrageousness. testosterone yeah. and
0: the drugs.
1: But but it's like it's okay for me because there's outrageousness. So yeah. maybe this is number two, number three.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's always been a favorite of mine too. So that's Alice doesn't live here anymore, which we recommend highly. Then we saw 1955's The Night of the Hunter which stars Robert Mitchum and is directed by actor Charles Lawton. It's the only film he ever directed.
1: And then you'll see it, and then you'll be like, I really wish there was more.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Robert Mitchum plays a criminal who gets out of jail. He happens to have known this other guy in jail who I think died in, in jail. He knew of he was some- hung okay that's that's right yeah. he he was executed um but he knew of a fortune hidden somewhere this guy by the way is peter graves of mission impossible and airplane fame by the way a uh, young peter graves and so robert mitchell's like i'm gonna find that fortune and he's all like he, he has this guy the skin of a preacher essentially that he he disguises he's a turtle someone, wolf right?
1: in sheep's clothing
0: yeah yeah and he's always proselytizing and everything uh and he tries to get closer to that guy's kids and marries his uh, his, his his wife played by shelly winters uh lillian gish plays a role uh silent screen legend lillian gish plays a role in this film. Shanna. Uh, What did you think of Night of the Hunter?
1: I absolutely loved this film. There were times where I couldn't look because there there is a significant amount of violence against women in this film. But Mm -hmm. the way this film was shot, the cinematography, the shaping of light, it's just amazing. It's it's so beautiful. Um, A really wonderful study of light sculpting. You know, there's this one shot where the woman is sitting on a rocking chair in front of a window, and half her body is silhouetted against that window, and the other half has light on her hands. Mm. And it's and then there's stuff happening in the background too, and it's just it's so beautiful. And you know, the children are it's no it's no um, spoiler that the children are trying to get away on a boat on the moonlit water and well it's
0: interesting because um, while that happens late in the film it's in the menu of the dvd
1: so like you're watching it and you're like wow that is so enchanting this is some like midsummer night dream kind (laughs) of what's gonna happen and then you start watching the first you know quarter of the film and you're like what the fuck is happening because yeah you, you know he's he's taking out people and it's it's so terrifying and so beautiful at the same time and then the end is just amazing like i guess we can't talk about it but
0: no more people should discover this film because i feel like the people who have are mostly of a certain era or like cinephiles in general and i really feel like more of the casual viewers should really uh, seek this out
1: I just I really think people should watch it. I think mm. it's a really good depiction of how a woman can be. You've got the the woman that's submissive and just gives up. You've a little got,
0: hysterical too.
1: Yeah, you've got um, a woman that's just completely and utterly judgmental, and then you've yep. got the compassionate fighter for you. Yeah, and it's just it's so wonderful.
0: Well, and also from like, there's a lot of meat to the story from a writing perspective, right? Because there's so much symbolism. Like characters represent certain things it plays a lot with religion it plays a lot with yeah. how people can be really fickle and and how religion can be used as a tool to turn people against each other or you know how judgment can be uh come can, can come through the prism of religion
1: and how if the person that is the wolf in sheep's clothing mm-hmm. if he can recognize those things he can totally use it to sway everyone his way absolutely and so you have to pay attention and you have to be objective and yeah i think you said it really well
0: yeah it's a real meaty uh film i wish we could dive in for like a half hour or Maybe so we can do a spoiler
1: fun. talk about it one day that'd be fun because it was so good
0: that'd be really cool so that's Nine of the Hunter. we have a couple more to get to which is why we're, we're cutting that one short we saw you know what let's do this uh we saw 1952 limelight by Charlie Chaplin. So this is Charlie Chaplin's third to last film. He made it in 1952. Uh, it's black and white. The same year as seen in the rain just gives you some perspective of where this falls and things. Also, at this time, he was already fairly... Uh, rake through the coals in the public's eye the previous few years because there was a scandal that went to court and a whole trial having to do with um, whether or not you know, this one kid was his. The government was accusing him of being a communist and all this sort of stuff. So he made this film that is so first of all it's his first purely dramatic film and it's so personal. He plays an aging and aged out former vaudeville comedian called calvero it's set in around 1914 1915 and this guy is past his prime he's having a hard time getting work he stumbles across someone else who lives in his apartment building who's tried killing herself she's a former dancer uh, and he basically establishes a relationship a, a platonic relationship trying to nurse her back to health, give her a will to live and a reason to live, you know, just help her just get her mind right in that sense, essentially. Uh, And, you know, one's career goes up and another career goes down. It's very similar to star is born actually, which, you know, there was already one version of that film 15 years before. That's pretty good. Yeah. And I think the Julie Garland one was coming out soon after anyway. So it's a long uh, two hour plus film. But what did you think of Lionelight, Shanna?
1: So I enjoyed it. I thought it was really great to see this really interesting story. And I had more appreciation for it after you told me about what was happening in his life. Mm -hmm. And so it became this really interesting... Well, so my life is X. He has the story I'm telling. And he has her story being told. And it, it kind of like it was this... Three in one, three deep kind of storytelling because okay. it's his real life, and then he's telling it kind of in a way through the movie, and then she's this ballet dancer, and then her ballet is kind of telling the story as well.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: So I th- I thought that that was really interesting. I don't know. There's probably a technical term for it. Unfortunately, wow. I, I I I don't have that on me. So. The black and white was beautiful, especially when she was on stage. Mm. It's always nice to to see the different ways in which lighting happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't really have much else to say other than that.
0: Uh, It should be noted that the she, in this case, is Claire Bloom, who essentially was starting her career at this time. I think even though this film was greatly unpopular because of Chaplin's reputation at the time, I think it probably gave her uh, some cred, particularly in Europe, where the film kind of flourished and did much better than in America at the time. Uh, It's always been one of my favorites. It's one of those things where it's like, wow, you actually get to hear the silent screen legend talk and drop wisdom and be very melancholic and reflective of his life and his career in some ways and i was i've always been enraptured by it i love the score the theme which was an oscar winning score and you know you also have as a cinephile you have the pure joy of having a scene where silent screen legend buster keaton is performing with charlie chaplin the very first time
1: i really enjoyed that scene i i never know if i'm gonna laugh at charlie's films Mm -hmm. as much as i appreciate him as a performer i'm i like i don't always laugh and then when the two of them got together i couldn't stop laughing i thought it was hilarious
0: you had to wait through uh, most of the film for for that joyous you know experience but I would say, like, it's not a slog, the film. Like, while there is a ballet right in the middle of the film that kind of and slows its pace. And you're
1: just its not pace, a ballet person.
0: Well, it was a style at the time that, filmically, I think it just, like, the movie stops and for this ballet. And the pacing kind of suffers a little bit because of it. Uh, but outside of that, I really think that the film is really worth worth seeking out it's not one that is as well known as some of his others so i definitely want to encourage people to hunt down this this film limelight if they can from 1952
1: i'm gonna defend ballet a little bit there all right (laughs) like i'm not gonna let that one go no i'm not gonna let that go i just think that you know it's it's a performance world that they're living in the two of them and so it makes sense that we're gonna see him perform his thing and then we eventually see her perform her thing you know so i don't think that it slows it down in any way especially especially because the story is being retold through ballet Mm. so it's not like it's it's doing a totally different thing it's just reinforcing the story. Well, fair enough. Yes, I, yes makes fair sense. enough indeed.
0: Let's uh, shall we get to the last film <laughs> yeah. that we saw before the main event? Okay, so the last film we saw, getting more modern, was this year's Detective Pikachu. I can't believe how long it took us for us to finally catch up with this film. It's a film we've been very curious and interested in. I mean, like I don't know if you how how you could not be aware of this thing. Ryan Reynolds voices Pikachu. Justice Smith. Plays a guy whose father went missing. Pikachu's going to help find the father. Uh, Shanna, what did you think of Detective Pikachu? Did it meet the reputation of video game movies in general, or did it rise above it?
1: So I think it's important for me to note that my exposure to Pokemon is not video game. Like I don't see it as a video game because mm. that's not how it attached itself to me. Okay. When Pokemon came to South Africa. There might have been games, but in the mainstream, it was a television show okay. and it was like a soap opera for kids, you know, Oh, like, okay. because it's like a 20 minute episode and then wait till the next episode and the next, it's right. like a soap opera. So I got really sick of Pokemon because uh, I mean, it hits South Africa really hard and it didn't leave, mm. you know so i was quite sick of it but then i saw this movie and i was like oh my god that's really cool you know to see it in a 3d way
0: like a live action way in a live action
1: way and you know you don't really have much reference of these these animated characters to Mm -hmm. be able to sculpt them yeah you know some are based on real animals but i thought that The way it was conceptualized and executed Mm -hmm. went really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, the visuals in this are stunning. Everything looks perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only problem I have with the film is that there's a couple of things that happen in the story that don't quite work. Yeah. Some are spoiler, some are not. Uh, Like, something happens with some Pokemon, they got, like, enhanced, and... We don't come back to well, how are we gonna deal with this? Yeah.
0: It becomes a huge action beat in the film and then it's just literally dropped after that I, action beat.
1: Guys, we could all die if that <laughs> happens again. Right, right. You yeah. know? Yeah. Like exactly. why why aren't we coming back? Like yeah. it needed something.
0: Yeah, it was all to bring about a rock the size of a of, of a softball, essentially, that injures a character. When it's like <laughs> you could have done anything Anything else to injure this character but you decided to make this huge expensive action beat that went nowhere beautiful right yeah 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 like you
1: said it went nowhere yeah you know everything looked really sleek like i don't know who was the cinematographer but it was beautiful stuff and i loved Mm -hmm. how the characters looked i think my favorite scene was Jigglypuff singing oh very softly like a blink
0: and you'll miss it
1: oh my god i love that character so fucking much so yeah
0: (laughs) So I will say briefly, I have very little exposure to Pokemon myself, really more like peripheral of, oh, this is a thing that kids are into kind of thing. I've played the card game a couple times. Um, our son has the video, a couple of video games, but I've never really engaged much with it. It's something I've kind of learned to avoid. All the movies are reputed to be bad. So yeah. I was curious about this because the trailer looked pretty, pretty cool and stuff. And it's Ryan Reynolds and all this sort of stuff. I will say that yes, I, I agree with you absolutely, almost to a, to a T. This film is gorgeous. They rendered what are typically like very flat, like cartoony characters into
1: very two dimensional, barely
0: believable creatures mm-hmm. that people interact with. Uh, but the story has its flaws. It's not terrible. It's not bad. It's not like you're not. Watching the film thinking oh god this is this is awful like a lot of video game movies this one is just like you know there's flaws in it so uh but it's an enjoyable film and it's probably no not probably it is one of the better video game movies out there that you could actually enjoy as a movie
1: yeah i would be totally fine you know for like kids to watch this and yeah. enjoy it i think they would enjoy it
0: yeah i give it a six out of ten probably
1: yeah, I feel like that's about right. I, I don't disagree with you.
0: Yeah, it's just right somewhere in the middle there. So that's Detective Pikachu. And now that finishes our week in review and moves us into the main event, which is our discussion of the 10th anniversary of 2009.
1: I think it's also important for us to say that it is the one of the first stormy days of fall. So our puppy is cuddled up with us right here. So you might hear some snoring.
0: Yes, apologize. I <laughs> try my best to edit out background noises. But, you know, there's only so much I have the ability and to do. And who
1: wouldn't want this cuteness background noise?
0: You <laughs> wouldn't want the cuteness in general? Okay, so 2009. 2009, Shanna. Let's take a look here. Let's, uh, Shall we start off as an entry point with the films that were like the top 10 biggest box office films of 2009 and kind of use that as an entry point to examine this year.
1: Yeah, let's start with the top 10 and then we can look at the craziness that is apparently 2009. Okay. And talk about it.
0: Well, it's very possible that this may be representative of what you are alluding to. So starting at 10, we had at $209 million, Sherlock Holmes, nine, at 219 a whole 10 million dollars more was Alvin and the Chipmunks the Squeak Will Oh no B- The Blind Side uh- followed that with 255.9 almost 256 million dollars Star Trek JJ Abrams film 257.7 million only 2 million more than Blind Side interestingly enough The Hangover 277.3 million was number 6 that year Pixar's film Up was t- number five at $293 million. This is interesting, Shanna. Twilight Saga New Moon was that's uh, number two, right? Number four. Yeah, it's the second film in the okay. series. Uh, number four for the year, $296.6 million. Number three, the third highest grossing film of the year, Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince, that's basically the sixth film in the series, 301 $0.9 million. Dollars. The second highest grossing film of the year was Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, $402 million. Dollars. And then the year ended with Avatar, $749.7 million. Dollars. So you look at that and qualitatively, I would say that is an extremely mixed bag. Yeah?
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: But then... I'm looking at it, and it's like, for the most part, I feel like we've forgotten about a lot of those movies. Some, you know, it's a good thing.
1: <laughs> I'm you like, know? you say that, and I'm like, but it was one of the most important movies ever.
0: <laughs> well, like, you're talking about Avatar, and I am. I'm going to put a pin in Avatar and come back to that I in know. a second. Okay. But everything else, it's like. Thank God we're done with Twilight. Thank God, God we don't done
1: with Elvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah,
0: exactly. We don't have any more of those, right? Um, there's, you know, there's not a lot of like. The question is, do you feel like many of these movies have had an impact since then, and like really are relevant still? I mean, you're like, I mean, like how many of these movies I mean... do people talk about much or reference very much these days?
1: I think that you and I reference Star Trek, so I feel like well, if the, if there's any geeks out there, that they probably reference it. Um, if they had a choice, they probably reference the older stuff. You know, typically.
0: With Star Trek, I would say that lingered for like the first half of this decade, but and after now it's over. like after Beyond, yeah. Like, there wasn't another sequel that came out. There's, like, you know, the franchise is in limbo and has been focused more on TV than in film.
1: Um, so, I mean, I guess you could say that it's significant because it created a new show. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it, so we can't really comment much about it.
0: That's a Star Trek Discovery on yeah, CBS, Yeah, but at access. least
1: it's, like, rebooted something, you know? Um, and
0: I don't even know if it's actually <clears throat> considered part of what you see in the films, either. You
1: know, uh, that upsets me that I don't know <laughs> the answer to it. Yeah. You know, I feel like not much here has a lot of weight. You know, out of the Harry Potter films, I always have a hard time with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Twilight. I mean, like when we go to the Half-Price books, you see like two or three shelves of twilight movies there was a know, lot people yeah. have let go of that shit yeah so thankfully i think however we can appreciate twilight in that you know one way that vampires are going to get a new look is by showing the sweet side of vampires hmm. and so i guess we can be grateful for that now you have only lovers left alive you have hmm. um i can't remember if tr- i don't think true blood was going at that point
0: but that definitely preceded um, Twilight. Yeah.
1: So it's, on TV, I think it's interesting because I feel like vampire, vampire world. I feel like we're gonna get something harsh or in reality, we and ha- then we're gonna get something too soft and sweet, and then we're gonna get something, you know, more down to earth. So I feel like vampires have the cycle, and they're never gonna go away.
0: I would say, first of all, we didn't even see very many vampire films uh, since Twilight really it didn't it's not like it ignited this trend of twilight of vampire films but what we did see yeah
1: what we did see was
0: more teen romance films for a while yeah that are thankfully very very removed from where twilight is quality you know there's some that's really schmaltzy and cheesy i don't know if you saw any of those in the theater with your with any of your friends but there's some that exist that are really schmaltzy and cheesy but there's those like actual good ones like the spectacular now and and the fault in the Stars*, kind of like all these YA romance novels got adapted
1: that have more realism to them compared and to more
0: emotional weight too yeah, yeah
1: compared to oh please love me oh no you went away now what will i do with my life i know i'll kill myself because that's helpful so anyway rant over um I've, i you know i'm looking at The kids' stuff, it just shows you that typically a sequel, the first sequel, will get into the top ten. You know, I I think that that's obvious. Sometimes the third will, sometimes it won't.
0: In this case, you're referring to Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, and, Mm -hmm. you
1: know, we've looked at other years where typically the second sequel does get into the top ten. And then Pixar always gets in. It's It's surprising to see Pixar so low. At number five with Up. But it's it's also... I don't know about you, but I thought that that was one of the most emotional films next to Inside Out. Hmm. Uh, because it was yeah. just... There was so much r- real grief attached to it.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. So I would say, like, just really in a br- brief nutshell, we see a lot of franchises that have come and gone since 2009 here. Some most mostly gone for the better and you know just a huge mixed bag of quality let's talk about avatar that's going to be the elephant in the room here i uh we kind of come down on different sides of this one i feel like avatar was a film that was a phenomenon for a year and it it, its biggest impact was that it led to a very misguided trend of 3d For a while. Uh, There was people like. um, Alfonso Cuarón and Martin Scorsese. Who tried doing things. Creatively with 3D. This decade. But on the whole. You had a lot of 3D transfers. And roughly by 2017. The amount of 3D films. You saw in the theater. Were significantly dropped. Compared to. The beginning of the first few years of the decade yeah. uh, but as a film on its own if there weren't the constant promise or tease of sequels to avatar being mentioned i don't think people really would care you don't see avatar merchandise all the time you don't see avatar apparel it's not like people quote avatar it's not like even people can really remember names of characters from Avatar, so like
1: all I of these, hate that you're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, like all these things add up to me asserting that Avatar had no impact on the culture, uh, pop culture, or what have you, whatsoever, and its only legacy was the 3D, which, for itself, I didn't even think was that great. I thought the visual effects were the great thing about it, but the 3D was okay, you know, and just a step forward. Uh, do, you, do you have an argument against what I'm, my claim?
1: So here's the thing. I don't think that my, t- my city that I was living in at the time, I don't think that we got it in 3D. So we just got to watch it 2D because I don't think that we had a 3D mm. projector at the time. Interesting. So you're talking about 3D, 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 and I'm like, okay, that's great. But I think the thing that was awesome for us was it was this acknowledgement of native people to a planet, Mm -hmm. uh, to a land, and appreciating spiritual practices. Now, I'm just one South African, one white South African talking about this. Right. My opinion could be a drop in the bucket you know but i thought that that was really amazing given that in south africa you have multiple cultures uh multiple you know native people to the land who have different spiritual practices and are often disrespected for for those things and so i feel like this movie really opened up a compassion bone you know um, I know that a lot of people that I watched it with really appreciated, you know, those themes mm. to it. Mm. And I was going to art school, so it, it could just be that we were all on the same plane of thinking. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so... I mean, visual effects, everyone appreciated that.
0: Sure. Sure. But again... I... No one really talks about the movie unless it's in relation to the sequels and when are they coming out and all that sort of stuff. So let's look at the uh, the year's greater whole. Uh, first of all, this won't be a favorites discussion, a, a discussion of our favorite films from the year. If you want to hear that, check out episode 11 of The Movie Lovers where we do talk about our favorite films from 2009. But let's kind of take a look at the the year as a whole shanna the first of all the hurt locker was the best picture winner that year still
1: have not seen that
0: which you haven't seen because
1: It's it's a war theme right
0: right you try to stay away from most films having to do with war the interesting thing is that really like like Catherine bigelow her career all of a sudden even though she had a career for like 20-plus years before that, you know, with Point Break and and Near Dark and several other films, all of a sudden people were, like, talking about Catherine Bigelow and how great she is. And I feel like she barely made ended up making a dent this decade. She made Zero Dark Thirty, which is a fantastic film from 2012, and then Detroit and not anything else. She kind of dropped off, you know? so that's interesting that's disappointing she didn't really live up to the promise for the most part of the hurt locker was there any films i i have a few notes here shanna was when you looked at the year were there any films that stood out to you as not necessarily oh i love those movies but like objectively yeah these are movies that are still talked about 10 years later. They have some cultural relevance or they made a dent and influenced film in some way.
1: I think I felt that way about Inglorious Bastards.
0: Okay, why is that?
1: I think because, you know, it's. Wasn't it Quentin Tarantino's first fantasy revenge film?
0: it okay so it is the first film he made in that is uh, a hist- historical fiction yeah right he was the first one that i can think of that really distorted history through his film
1: and i think that that's important i mean look at the movie that we were gonna review we were gonna review jojo rabbit i don't know right. I, I like i know nothing about it i just know that hitler's in it right right he looks he's, happy.
0: He's consoling a boy and he's kind and of melancholic. Yeah, yeah. He
1: looks like a real person, not a monster. <laughs> right. So it's, I, I think that, I think that that film does have relevance. I think that that's how the world saw Christoph Waltz. Hmm. I was really satisfied to see Brad Pitt as this, you know, over the top stereotypicalized American. Hmm. And I thought that that was hilarious. I, You know, we were also exposed to, oh, what is his name? And he... Michael Fassbender? Shoots, he shoots Shoshana.
0: Oh. Um, he's in... A, yeah. Uh, I always forget his name, the he's poor in a guy. Marvel
1: movie now.
0: He was a villain in Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I It's mean, going to come to... Daniel Bruhl.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, like, we've got him. Like you just said, we've got Michael Fassbender now. You know, in a broader sure. sense. I think Melanie Laurent. Yeah.
0: Who actually, she also came and went because she was in Beginners in 2011. And I haven't seen much of her since, unfortunately, because I, I really liked her. Diane Kruger, also in that film.
1: Yeah, I was familiar with her before that. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. And I think it was also just such a, you know, for people who weren't sure what propaganda film was, this showed you. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, if you had never seen anything like that before, like I remember going to the theater with my brother to yeah. watch this film, and he wasn't he wasn't sure what propaganda film was, and so we saw that. Yeah, yeah. And then he got it, and you know, there's that one really long, no cut scene, where they're in the theater. And they're checking out the whole cat, like the whole, oh, all the people. Okay. There's so much red, it can make you vomit, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah. I feel like Inglorious Bastards had an impression, you know? I,
0: in what way is that reflected since 2009?
1: I think more people take the challenge of no cut.
0: Well, see,
1: I know that that existed before. Yeah, I'm well I mean, aware of
0: Alfonso Cuarón in 2006 was chi- Children of Men, really. Was the one that really pushed that and got got attention.
1: I think this just had a big impression on me too. Yeah, but like historic fiction wise, I think Inglorious Bastards started that up.
0: I would say the biggest thing about Inglorious Bastards, which by the way I think is Tarantino's best film and the best film of two thousand nine, yeah, uh, is that it gave us Christoph Waltz. But the problem is. From there, he went to making films like Water for Elephants and Green Hornet and all of these movies that... So
1: he re- has a bad agent.
0: Really poorly utilized him, you know, yeah. and, and really undercut his, his talent. Like, I don't think he's had a, a role as... Rich in as as uh, interesting as Hans Landa and I don't in think Gl- Inglorious Bastards.
1: I don't think it's his fault. I I think I'm gonna blame his agent. I'm like I don't know what you're doing, but you're not doing your job. This man needs like <laughs> roles, you know.
0: All right, so let's move on. We got what other movies stand out to you as actually? Oh, what relevant? you're gonna make
1: me stop talking about Inglorious Bastards? We we have to move <laughs> <You> on, bastard. <laughs> I felt like kids kind of got screwed this year because oh, there, was, there was so much crap. But then amongst the crap, there were things like Up, mm-hmm. and there were things like...
0: Gladiator um, with a Chance of Meatballs by Phil Lord.
1: I mean, I guess. It's not, not my favorite film. Uh, then you had Ponyo, which I think oh. you said you can argue what what release date it was. But it's there. In the Wikipedia, I think article. it is.
0: I think it is two thousand nine,
1: and then you get the squ- the squeakquel, Alvin, and right, the squeakquel. right? So I feel like kids monsters got, versus aliens. Yeah, I feel like kids got screwed that year.
0: Hmm, because of Ponyo and the others, or are you saying that there is more... no? I'm
1: saying you had crap, and then you had good stuff like Up and Ponyo.
0: Yeah, uh, but uh, I would say the crap was the majority. Yeah. That year, yeah, and you had maybe four good films. You know, uh, Coraline, Up, you know, things along those lines.
1: Yeah, and there's definitely more inclusion of adults in the ones that were good. You know, so you have mm. Ponyo, which is like for people who grew up watching Little Mermaid, it's like, okay, well now I get to see Ponyo, and it's this, it's this more sort of traditional and alternate, you know, other cultures interpretation of a mermaid. In Up, it, I mean, it starts with the loss of a wife. You know. Um, and trying to be okay and moving on, right. And then Coraline is kind of like it's a good one for I guess preteens, parents and their preteens. And then you have the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which even made Criterion by Wes Anderson um, a real dull story, told with more adult themes and not shying away from uh, the behavior of what what foxes actually would be like, you know.
0: Um, yeah it's actually interesting i was going back to ponyo and it ended up being the highest grossing miyazaki film in the united states so which that... surprises me but it's apparently true
1: i wonder if that's because it had this sort of oh well we see we all know little mermaid so let's maybe. go check out ponyo i don't
0: know maybe i uh, it's it could be also now that... i
1: want to now i want to go watch ponyo
0: it could be also that by that time you had spirited away which was an oscar winning animated film Mm. that finally brought some attention in the states to miyazaki then you had hell's moving castle and maybe it just kind of worked its way up in terms of reputation i don't know you know that's that's interesting and very surprising um I would say that you're probably right about the animated uh, the genre of that year. But, you know, looking at movies that really stand out, I think while well, there's definitely probably about a dozen films that we could both count that are actually great or really good solid films from that year, you know, Moon is one of the only movies that actually has built up a reputation over time and i just read an article celebrating moon's 10th anniversary with an interview with duncan jones now duncan jones is a director who had a lot of promise demonstrated through moon and he went on to like make warcraft you know like uh he kind of didn't live up to that he's
1: the christoph waltz of inglorious boston
0: of of moon Yeah, yeah you could say that you know but moon itself has grown in esteem over time as one of the best sci-fi films of that decade, at the very least, you know? And one of Sam Rockwell's best performances.
1: Oh, it's interesting because what what anniversary of the moon landing are we on now, 50?
0: Something like that.
1: So that means moon came out on, like, the 40th year. I guess so. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. There's three other films that actually have relevance to this very year. 10 years later okay is it, is it Moon? let me no it's no <laughs> let me go through those and maybe we can wrap up after this perfect so Watchmen came out in 2009 ah. and here we have 10 years later mm-hmm. an hbo series based on Watchmen, which
1: premiered last night the day we're recording this right it premiered last night
0: right and we haven't seen it so i can't speak to that and also, very few R rated films like Watchmen came out since. Like, Deadpool is probably the most notable R rated film, and you couldn't get further away from Watchmen than Deadpool, right? Like, De- Watchmen was a very sincere, very dark, very grisly superhero film. And Deadpool is grisly, but also.
1: It's so super fun. And fun, right? Yeah. And bizarre.
0: Zombieland had its hmm. sequel come out this past weekend, Double Tap, which we have not seen. It's it's not said to be as good as the original, but uh, if you've seen it, feel free to write in with your thoughts. So that's, you know, 10 years later, it has a sequel. And then in 2009, a little film called Terminator Salvation came out <laughs> by Mick G, the director of Charlie's Angel's I don't know, full throttle or one of those movies from earlier in that decade. And here we have in a couple weeks, Terminator dark fate coming out another crack at that franchise, you know? So like, if you want to talk about relevancy, there is that, but even with Terminator, you could probably be like, well, that's more just, you could say the original Terminator is the one that's got relevance, not Terminator salvation. And you're probably right, because Terminator Salvation is terrible, you know? And in fact, this upcoming sequel supposedly ignores Terminator Salvation's existence. So, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about those three films?
1: I don't have many thoughts about Zombieland in general. I'm very curious about the Watchmen series. I fucking love Watchmen. I included it in my thesis, so it had a huge impression on me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that it, you know, at the time, I, th- I think people forget that, like, we tend to forget that before Watchmen came out, like the movies that we had seen prior to that was sweet face Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. And it's Spider-Man.
0: Sort of, except we, Christopher Nolan had already started his Dark Knight trilogy by that had time. Two thousand five was oh. Batman Begins, and the and in two thousand eight was the Dark Knight.
1: Okay, but we all know that Batman's more dark than, you know.
0: Sure. But
1: it's kind of you never know what you're gonna get with Batman, the Batman yeah, franchise. Yeah, you might get nipples. Yeah, exactly, you never know. So, I feel like, and it's just Batman. You know, he didn't have his Robin. In the Nolan trilogy. Okay. And then Watchmen is like, how many superheroes? And not only is it a bunch of superheroes that we're following, but there was another generation that got talked about in it too. So there's, there's two yeah. generations.
0: And it's more of an examination of the archetype of superheroes as well. <clears throat> yeah. And deconstructing so, them.
1: I, You know, I think I would like to see more stuff like that. People seem to be really into superheroes and... It, you know, so, Why not you know. branch it out some more?
0: Yeah, and do you have any thoughts about Terminator Salvation? And it's and is that the, the
1: one that's like number three?
0: No, oh. it's oh, it's actually technically four if you're keeping count. It's the one with Christian Bale I in it.
1: I don't think I finished watching it.
0: Oh, good for you! You spared yourself. I paid three dollars to see it, and you paid three dollars. Second run movie theater <laughs> oh, with that's a friend. Funny. Not <laughs> at all excited about seeing it, and it was awful. Uh, we'll see what Dark Fate is like. So I don't know, like
1: I have hopes for Dark Fate because you know, one and two, maybe we're forgetting that what made it successful was yes, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger, but we had Sarah Connor. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Connor's missing from all the other crap that happened before. And maybe this is going to be the thing that reminds us that women are badasses too. And who's the best badass that's been around for the longest in sci-fi history. It's, we know, we know it's, um,
0: Sigourney Ripley, but <laughs> it's, I know it's Ripley.
1: I know it's Ripley, but like also Sarah Connor. So,
0: yeah, I don't know that we needed to be reminded of that as though we forgot. But it'll be interesting well, to be see... I'll be
1: pleased to see her again, so...
0: It'll be interesting to see if that's anything more than stunt casting uh, in an attempt to make it relevant again. I was just trying to look through, really, you know, in terms of wrapping up, briefly looking over the year 2009 and any other thoughts that we might have looking at that release schedule. Uh, looking over it, Shanna, was there anything else that... That jumped out at you that uh, that you wanted to speak to uh, before we wrap up.
1: I just think it was a really horribly mixed bag of stuff. You know, I'm just I look I look briefly at the list and I'm like, holy shit, that was crap and that was crap and there was Dragon Ball Evolution. What the fuck? You know, it's it's like I it's like I, I don't know what to say. There was this just really mixed bag of crap versus decent stuff and the decent stuff made our lists so go back to what is it episode 11
0: yeah yeah you know it's interesting people are celebrating right now the 1999's 20th anniversary and i think that year in particular is getting the most (laughs) attention
1: maybe it's because 2009 sucked
0: well uh, let me finish my point which is that from 1999 like you had the matrix you had fight club you had movies. I'm forgetting. There was so many movies. The Sixth Sense. So so many films that yeah. are considered, and it's considered one of the greatest years of all time. So maybe it's not fair, but compare it to 2009. It's like wow. Like 2009 had its gems. It it did have its gems, but not many that like outside of 2009 really had much of an impact you know, hump day, 500 days of summer. Uh, you know, it's really hard to think of them. We talked about some of them already, but there's not a lot, you know? So it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough year. It's very interesting to look back at these anniversaries and see what sort of impact a year has made. Paranormal activity. There's one I almost completely forgot about. That alone spawned an entire decade of supernatural horror i mean like if you're to define horror this decade like it is pretty much supernatural uh like the vast majority of it so that's a film that definitely had relevance and paranormal activity itself was definitely a part of that as it had like five four or five sequels or some crazy thing that's some. That's a film that had some significance, but it's kind of the exception when you take a look at the year on the whole, wouldn't wouldn't you say?
1: I think so. I mean, I feel like horror is a weird thing to look at because sometimes it's not necessarily, it's not a good injection of creativity. I mean, mm. paranormal activity, and then you have like what five more after that, but right. Yeah. But then, like, did it create anything else?
0: Well, I think it probably encouraged by the studios to greenlight such things as The Conjuring, Insidious, you know. Oh, I see. Okay. You had so many supernatural films that came out because of that, you know, or after that.
1: Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, if I have to think back to, like, okay, The Blair Witch Project, did that spur anything on maybe found footage
0: genre well actually no paranormal activity i think reignited the found footage genre too which i completely forgot about because there was a rash of those films for a while too (laughs) apparently
1: we can only take paranormal stuff in found footage which is the idea alone is terrifying to me (laughs) well it
0: went so far as to george romero even making a found footage zombie film which is reputed to be one of his worst films i think i saw it too but like everybody was doing found footage for a while of different different kinds, right? Mm, you even had, had
1: Cloverfield. Right?
0: Well, yeah, that, that's a good one, very good. I was going to say also you even had found footage, which Cloverfield actually I think came out in like 2007. But oh um, well,
1: then I'm wrong again.
0: But I was going to say you had Chronicle, which was a found footage superhero film. Yeah, you and then
1: that's taking that. You know, two genres, right?
0: Yeah, it's taking the found footage idea into a different direction. So I guess, like, paranormal activity is, like, the one thing you could say really had the most impact from 2009 uh, out of everything else. And even then, you could argue it's not even necessarily the best film of the year, right? Mm. But it definitely had the most uh, impact, uh, for sure. So I don't know uh what'd you think of the year 2009 what's your impressions your thoughts what stands out to you is there anything we didn't uh take into consideration that came from that year that had a larger impact in terms of film uh feel free to email us at the gibsonreview at gmail.com now it's time to move on to film faves Film Faves is our final segment of the podcast wherein we express our joy of movies inspired by a post I used to do on the blog where we count down our 12 favorite films around a particular topic often marching backwards through time. The idea is to not just give you a sense of our taste in film but also hopefully expose you to some titles that maybe you have yet to see. So to that end, we also try to point you in the direction of when, where these films are available on subscription services, uh, streaming services, uh, particularly Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Now, and Hulu. In this episode, we're going to finish up our almost year-long discussion, actually, looking at the 80s, by our, fi- our final list of our favorite films of the decade, The one hitch is all of our picks must be available to stream on one of those services. So this will be interesting and fun. Shanna, I'm kind of curious. When I look through my list of movies that I made, compared to all the other lists year by year going through the 80s, only one movie that was my number one favorite of a particular year actually made it to my list and it actually ended up being my favorite film on this list did you how many you're super lucky (laughs) yeah how many of your number ones made it onto this list
1: i believe none
0: isn't that interesting? I'm pretty
1: sure it's none. I mean, like maybe my number two or three made it on. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, no, that's enough.
0: Fascinating. And I think if if more of my number ones, like uh, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, Aliens, more of those had been available on these streaming services, it might make for a more challenging and interesting list. Was there a year that stood out to you as like, this is my favorite year of the 80s when making this list based on your picks?
1: So it doesn't look like that had a huge effect. I mean, we can see what happens, but it looks like it's pretty spread out.
0: Fascinating. For me, well, I would normally say probably like 1989 or 1984 is my favorite year of the 80s. If you were to go by this list alone, there's really more 1986 as it had the most picks on my list.
1: Speaking of 1986, that's my number 12 is from 1986.
0: Fantastic. You are right on it. Without any further ado, tell us about your number 12.
1: So my number 12 is available on Netflix. It's She's Gotta Have It.
0: By Spike Lee, right? By
1: Spike Lee. I love this film because of the female uh, character, Nola Darling, played by Tracy Camilla Johns. She is having a hard time deciding what kind of man she wants to date. So she decides to just go with three because (laughs) why have one when you can have three? And they each represent a different part of what a woman might come across if she's dating men. You have the rich narcissist. Mm. You have the alpha objectifying woman asshole i think he's an asshole and then you have the fun-loving uh comedic geek who is played by spike lee right
0: i believe so i'm trying to think about it we had actually quite the discussion about it a few episodes back too when uh we did the movies from that year
1: yeah spike lee plays mars who is the the geeky fun-loving guy who's really sweet you know he's just happy she's there with him hmm I really love this film because we're actually taking a real good look at what her experience is with these three men, and we're not shaming her. Mm. I mean, the men get upset about it when they figure it out because that's not a spoiler, so it's a romantic comedy. Of course that's going to happen. So I really love it for that.
0: Very cool, very cool. My 12th favorite film of the 80s is available on Hulu. It is 1989's Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah,
1: if you need a cleansing cry, (laughs) this is the one, guys.
0: Now, this is the first of a, a handful of animated films on my list, and it's probably by far the most mature and the one that pushes what is possible with the animated form the most, in the sense that it can be more than just talking animals and friendly songs, folks, This is a historical drama that takes place after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It follows, it's from the perspective of two adolescents. One is more or less a toddler. The other is somewhere near, like, he's definitely like preteen if he's not a teen. And it is one of the most beautiful pieces of animation I have ever seen in my life. And it just absolutely destroys me and it will destroy you. But don't take that as a reason to avoid it. Do embrace this film.
1: Yeah, when you're ready to have a cleansing cry.
0: It is one of the greatest anime of all time. Grave of the Fireflies from 1989 on
1: Hulu. That's a really good one about a brother and sister relationship and being there for each other. Good point. My number 11 is available on Netflix and is also from 86. So we'll see how my list oh, shapes up. How about that? It is an American tale. Speaking of... I'm going to do a lot of speaking of's. Speaking of having a cleansing cry, go ahead and watch this one. It is um, about immigrants taking the form of mice. They're living in Russia and they decide to immigrate to the United States. They believe that there are going to be no cats.
0: There are no cats in America. In America.
1: Um, And I suppose that's kind of going for like the bad guys. There's no bad guys in America. No one's going to try to eat us or kill us
0: and the streets are made of cheese
1: and yeah you know, it'll be wonderful because america is the land of dreams so of course it's going to be made of cheese <laughs> <you know? laughs> they have a lovely little rude awakening and get separated from their son fievel jeff makes me tear up every time he's like mama mama and he's like, "Papa, papa, papa. Yeah. but he'll do mama mama for me so it's a beautiful john is it john bluth
0: Don Bluth. I'm but, sorry. Yes.
1: Don Bluth. It's a beautiful Don Bluth film. It's it's really lovely and really makes you appreciate your family. Why do you look like you're going to cry?
0: Oh, I'm not. I'm okay. not. Okay. <laughs>
1: because if you cry about this, I will cry about I,
0: this. I think we'll hear more, hear more about Don Bluth as we get into these lists.
1: Get your tissues, people.
0: My 11th favorite, speaking of the devil, my 11th favorite film of the 80s is actually his film he did after American Tale, Land Before Time, on HBO Now, it unfortunately spawned an endless series on video. But we can all like uh, forget that those exist. and just focused on the one that follows these dinosaurs that are on this... These young dinosaurs, I should say, that are on this endless journey towards the one... Area of land that actually might be able to nurture life. What is it called? Oh, I forgot what it's called. Anyway, it's a beautiful film. You know, you got colorful characters. Of course, a T Rex plays the villain, plays the villain, is the villain in the film
1: it's just for pretend
0: (laughs) so it's it's a uh, beautiful film it's one of Don Bluth's best films
1: and they're heading towards the Great Valley the Great Valley is what it's called
0: thank you yes yes anyway Land Before Time a beautiful film and if you have kids who love dinosaurs that's one of the best films for kids who love dinosaurs to
1: introduce the concept of a cleansing cry to them okay fine
0: (laughs) All right. what What's your number 10? My
1: number 10 is from Hulu. It is from 1985. It is The Color Purple.
0: Oh, wow. Really? No Yeah. Kidding. Very cool. Yeah, this
1: is really good. I mean, there are some fantastic female characters in this film. This is directed by Steven Spielberg. It stars the debut of Whoopi Goldberg.
0: And Oprah Winfrey.
1: And Oprah Winfrey. And... I mean, this is a story taking place over 40 years, and it deals with themes of loss and grief and abuse mm-hmm. and the continuation of abuse and not questioning whether you should be the one to stop it or not. Mm-hmm. It's even It's got Danny Glover as well, mm-hmm. and it's just a really fantastic film.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. My number 10 is... So not The Color Purple. You couldn't get f- much further away from The Color Purple with my number 10 pick available on Amazon Prime. It is 1986's Highlander.
1: Oh, great. <laughs> yes, it could not be further on the scale yeah. from each other.
0: Now, this is a film I grew up with, as I explained in our 1986 episode. This is a film that I loved. It has an awesome soundtrack by Queen and... Yeah. Clancy Brown was introduced to me through this film. Clancy Brown, who is a great character actor, has been in things like Lost, and he's done a lot of character voice work uh, through through DC. I think he's actually Lex Luthor in the DC series and, and animated films, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken. But also, like, in a time where remakes seem almost inevitable, this seems like a franchise That should actually be remade. Because while there are fans such as myself that adore the first film, it is very hard to argue against the notion that every film afterwards sucks. (laughs) And so this franchise could definitely be improved upon. And I would actually love to see a reboot of this. I know people have been trying. I would Uh love to see it actually happen.
1: I'd be open to seeing it as a decent film, yes.
0: Yeah, you know, flesh out the mythology a little bit, make sense of it a little bit better. You know, there's there's room for improvement, and I think it would be awesome. So, yeah, Highlander, 1986 on Prime.
1: My number nine is Baby Boom from 1987 and is available on Amazon Prime. This stars Diane Keaton. We get to see for just a little bit, we get to see Harold Remus, Sam Shepard. It is written by Nancy Myers. This is all about Diane Keaton's character. She's a super successful career woman and all of a sudden she gets a phone call in the middle of the night that she is about to inherit a child from a long lost relative Who are these fucking long lost relatives and why is there no paperwork involved? Anyway, so she inherits a baby and uh, she's just hilarious to watch. You know, she's the kind of person that throws all the toys, you know, buys all the toys, buys all the clothes. And she's like, and now we're going to have a great time. (laughs) She's like got zero parenting skills whatsoever. And it's just, it's really lovely and fun to see how she's going to go about raising this kiddo.
0: Very cool. My number nine is probably the film that is the least known on my list. I'm going to venture to guess. It may be the next one after it, but it is a film that is available on Amazon Prime from 1986. It is Iron Eagle, a movie, again, I grew up with. I grew up with the soundtrack. I don't know why, but my myself and my family loved Iron Eagle and hated Top Gun, which came out the year after. Uh, Iron Eagle is very cheesy. It is very unlikely. It is very much of its time, but I still love it. I love Louis Gossett Jr. in it. He's great as this kind of mentor mentor figure who helps this teen concoct a mission under the radar so to speak to help save his dad who's been captured in the Middle East and is about to be a, a executed you know it's a it sounds like a very heavy story but it's actually not because probably because they keep things light with a kicking sound 80s soundtrack uh-huh. the teen he always needs to listen to music in order to perform his best as a fighter pilot the teen is played by Jason Gedrick by the way but yeah anyway Iron Eagle is just total... Pure '80s cheese and fun, and I relish it. It's just I will roll around in that fun oh of gosh. Iron Eagle.
1: Okay, that's um, great. Another
0: another movie that had some pretty bad sequels too. Oh no! Yeah.
1: Okay. Number eight for me is on HBO, and I highly recommend it. It has Criterion treatment. Lost in America. Oh, very cool. Uh, this is like my favorite. <laughs> real-life couple movie. Mm. A husband and wife in their 30s decide that they're going to quit their jobs and they're just going to be free spirits. Now, I don't know what these people do for a living that allows them to retire before age 40. Maybe it's just...
0: Telling of a
1: different time that they're in. I mean, Jeff and I don't have savings. That's no secret. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that sounds nice. Very nice, nesting.
0: Plus, they are able to do some real estate stuff, mortgage stuff to be able to get some money too, I think. Yeah,
1: that's right. Because they had bought a house. Something like that. And then they decide, well, buying a new house is just so damn stressful because this is what happens if you try to buy a house (laughs) you decide instead you're going to retire and explore america which anyway it stars albert brooks and julia Haggerty, and i freaking love julia Haggerty like she is my favorite albert brooks is my favorite he directed it as well and wrote it along with a few others uh my favorite line is the nest egg Uh you know and that's essentially their savings the nest egg argument the nest egg must be protected that's right honey we need a nest egg (laughs) that needs to be protected
0: (laughs) indeed (coughs) don't we all my number eight is probably the other film that is not as well known unless you grew up in the 80s it is harry and the hendersons from 1987 i freaking love that movie netflix maybe we'll hear from you about it i don't know but John Lithgow is the family patriarch,
1: it's and the sweet John Lithgow, yeah, not yeah. the psycho blowout right. John Lithgow, not
0: serial killer Sir John <laughs> Lithgow. But they're, gosh, they're out on a drive in the woods, and they come upon an actual Sasquatch and take him home, and he becomes one of the family. It's got one of, I think it's Rick baker who did the makeup and creature effects it's one of his favorite things he ever did it's a hilarious film very silly film it's a sweet film and it's got a wonderful soundtrack as well
1: it's I, so hopeful
0: yeah i adore harry and the hendersons It was a family favorite growing up as well so that's my number eight from 1987 on netflix
1: my number seven is Available on Hulu from 1987, Lethal Weapon. Starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, two of my favorites. And how we describe this film is, you know, Mel Gibson is paired up with danny glover danny glover is as always in lethal weapon movies near retirement mm-hmm. and too old for the shit mm-hmm. and who does he get a firecracker of a young cop <laughs> it's
0: like who is suicidal who
1: is suicidal so it just keeps getting better for poor daddy so, yeah. <laughs> and they pair up they're totally different from each other of course but that makes a good cop film doesn't it right And uh, I couldn't help but notice like, okay, they're totally different ages as depicted in the film. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think of my TV show, The Closer, and I'm like, it's a team of like maybe six or eight people, but like the two that are always together are sort of, they're always around the same age. And I'm like, I wonder if that's got to do with the fact that one, they keep up with each other 2 They're not going to like kill each other, you Mm. know, Um, or risk killing one another (laughs) due to their different energy levels.
0: Right. <clears throat> Very cool, that, that's an awesome one i I didn't even realize I was available. My number seven is uh one of the only films from 1984 that made the list. It's available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. It is the Terminator. Clearly relevant today, as we mentioned earlier in the episode. there's this this is a sequel still coming uh they, they just just will not let the Terminator die, uh, basically. Oh, this franchise absolutely will not stop. Uh, just like the Terminator will not stop. It's a classic. It's Of course, it's one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. It's arguably James Cameron's best film. Uh, definitely one of the, his best films in a storied career of great sci-fi. And it is the film that made Schwarzenegger a star, I believe. So, Yeah, it's my number seven favorite film of the 80s. That's The Terminator, 1984 on Prime and Hulu.
1: My number six is Rain Man from 1988. It's available on Hulu or Netflix. Man,
0: you got some great picks.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, So what we've got here is tom cruise and dustin hoffman dustin hoffman turns out to be a long lost brother of tom cruise what is up with all this long lostedness i swear i wonder if that exists anymore <laughs> like you don't really see it in stories anymore do you
0: i don't
1: because i think our think culture so? has changed so much yeah I facebook can, yeah there, like there's no
0: yeah I, that's an interesting nothing. point huh
1: Anyway, so Tom Cruise is this crazy. Is he crazy? Business guy. He's trying to make business work. Yeah, he's yeah, like so on. He's the, crazy. He's
0: very close to failing.
1: Yeah, and so what does that do to a person? It makes them crazy. <laughs> okay, fine. So, <laughs> speaking from entrepreneurial experience, and he finds out about Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Tom Cruise's father has died, and that's how he finds out about his long lost brother who lives in a home. Right. He's autistic. Yeah, and so he decides to try and get the fortune and he has to kind of bond with his brother and memories are stirred up.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, my next film, as we are at the halfway mark now, is available on Amazon Prime. It is from 1982. It is The Road Warrior, which outside of the United States was the sequel to Mad Max. This is one of the greatest films of the 80s in my estimation. It's one of Mel, Br- Mel Brooks. It's a Mel Brooks film, The Road Warrior. It's one of Mel Gibson's. That
1: would be a totally different film. Yes, it was. I don't yes, mind seeing would. that, actually.
0: It's one of Mel Gibson's best films, most iconic films. Of the Mad Max series, this is up until this decade. This is the movie that people think about most, I would say. Uh, And to the point where when I actually saw the original Man Max, I was surprised at how different it is from The Road Warrior. But The Road Warrior is exceptional. It's a a masterpiece. And it is uh, just an astonishing piece of stunt filmmaking, too. So if you haven't seen that and you've seen Man Max Fury Road, dude, you got to dig this thing up on Amazon Prime. Check it out. The Road Warrior... 1982, my number six favorite of the 80s.
1: My number five is The Land Before Time on HBO. Nice. And this is like one of my favorite films growing up. It always made me cry. Uh, but it's so beautiful in how it's animated and how lovely is it that we get to see a really sweet story about a boy that's just witnessed losing his mother. Mm. Um you know travel with other children dinosaurs that have you know been separated from their parents Mm. and they're on a mission together and they all have different personalities and that's either just because their personalities are going to be different or it's because of the species that they are
0: yeah i was gonna say they're different species yeah
1: so they have to be different you know in order to survive and we have cute names like ducky and littlefoot and
0: wasn't one named Spike?
1: Sarah and Spike and Petrie.
0: Petrie, yeah. <laughs> Petrie was a favorite of mine.
1: Petrie is like the awesomest. And you know, we have it narrated by Pat Hingle, mm-hmm. And he just brings like this this like sweet like groundedness to everything. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what else to say about this film other than my family and I, we quote it to each other all the time. Oh, really? You know, we're like, look, 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 look what they're doing. They're eating our food. No one's eating our food. Uh. Like like the food comes out uh, onto the table and we start quoting the movie. This was like the first movie that came out Where there was merchandise that matched the movie. Oh yeah, you talked about that. You know, it was a big freaking deal for me. It was the first time I felt like, hey, we're Americanizing. This is great. You know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The good side of things.
0: You're very aware of capitalism. (laughs) We're
1: capitalizing. This is great. (laughs) As a seven
0: year old. Yeah. Very cool. All right, my number five is also. It's on Amazon Prime and Hulu. It's from 1987 it is the monster squad which was when i was seven years old one of the coolest movies that ever existed because it took the goonies formula of a group of kids on an adventure you know they're going to save the day and applied it to a monster movie with all of the classic monsters in one movie you had Dracula, the Wolfman, creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein's monster, the mummy and some of the best versions of those characters too. It's it's a fun movie. In some ways it's very eighties in terms of some of the character dynamics. The fact that there's an it, it plays on the whole Virgin mythology. And it and, um, does it in a very 80s way. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, right. not your favorite element of the movie. I'm I know. so happy. Yeah. But it's still, uh, it's still a lot of fun. It was my first PG-13 movie I saw, too. So, anyway, fond memories. The Monster Squad, 1987 on Prime and Hulu.
1: All right. My next one is from 1989. It is available on Hulu. It is Lethal Weapon 2. Oh, okay. <laughs> Riggs one. and Murtog, they're on, they're teaming up again. Again, Murtog is too old for this shit. He's never been young enough for this shit. And here's the interesting part this is the first film I watched when I realized how shitty South African accents are.
0: Uh-huh. Um, I
1: was like, oh my God, is that really what we sound like? That's funny. So, what's happening in this film? Essentially, it's happening during, well, you know, it's 89. Um, apartheid ended in officially 94 Mm -hmm. so uh, we're at the height here where people are starting to protest around the world and it just so happens that surprise surprise south africans are doing something bad and they have diplomatic immunity so they cannot be stopped so now we're dealing with this interesting theme of hey you've got all this evidence and stuff you can't touch him right so and it's people of power it's not random people entering the country
0: right white people if i remember correctly
1: yes it's very white yeah. are
0: they um are they they afrikaans? afrikaans very cool
1: and they don't hold back they're mean as shit i think i think this is the episode where there's a toilet bomb or something yeah 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 that's yeah. famous yeah there's some really good moments uh, this if you ever hear someone saying diplomatic immunity this is where it's from
0: <laughs> okay oh i mean not the, the concept of diplomatic immunity came from the movie but yeah
1: no i mean if you're hearing it if you're hearing a, a, a pop person quoting then you know this is where it's from <laughs>
0: gotcha my fourth favorite is from 1982 it's available on amazon prime and hulu it is star trek II: the wrath of khan perhaps the best star trek film of the 80s if not ever this is the film that ostensibly was referenced, if not remade, so to speak, with Star Trek Into Darkness, where they brought back the character Khan, who was awakened too soon or a lot sooner than he is in the original history, uh, which originally started with the Star Trek episode Space Seed. This is essentially a sequel to that episode Space Seed, which was hugely exciting star trek fans to have a film that's actually based on one of the episodes of the original series can't get more honorable than that in terms of honoring a franchise yeah it's a great film ricardo multibon is fantastic and kirstie and alley i think made her appearance here for the first time if i'm yeah i think i'm right uh she played a vulcan uh, officer too so anyway star trek II: the wrath of khan 1982 my fourth favorite film of the 80s
1: Well, my number three, we're at the home stretch here, is Harry and the Hendersons. Nice. Yeah. I love this film. We used to watch it a lot too, and it was also less sad than Land Before Time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although
0: the end does... The end gets you. I I
1: would usually walk out the room when it was the end. It's
0: difficult, yeah.
1: And it's just, it's such a great film. There's so much compassion happening. There's so much fighting for each other happening. Mm. Uh, Harry is very confused when there's that famous scene where he's roaming around in the neighborhood and he sees someone boiling a pot of water oh yeah you talked about this last time too yeah oh i did okay well it just shows i'm consistent people (laughs) and and then he sees a jacuzzi so he kind of makes this connection then he sees someone putting a chicken in there to cook it and then he sees a man helping his wife to get into the jacuzzi to help relax the muscles and he's just horrified as fuck and it's just hilarious his interpretations
0: yeah there's a lot of funny moments like that in that in that film uh that's that's actually really surprising it's your third favorite that's cool my third favorite film of the 80s available on hbo now from 1986 is big trouble in little china of course it is by john carpenter because the thing by john carpenter was not available to stream so if i were given a choice Big Trouble in Little China is going to be the one I would watch above most of this list so far because it's so fun. As a kid, a six or seven year old kid, it just really sparked my imagination in so many different ways. It had some of the coolest henchmen I've ever seen in film with the Storm Brothers, I think they're called. It has like a really wicked, weird creature in it. Some really wicked creature weird creatures in it actually. Kurt Russell in one of his like peak Kurt Russell roles, where he's a bit of a doofus actually. You think he's going to be the hero of the movie, when actually all these other people, the Asians and others are actually the heroes of the movie and he's just this this you know, dumbass American charging in and getting himself knocked out and shit. It's all oh, awesome i know shanna you for whatever reason don't like this movie but i think it's an absolute blast super creative and so cool uh that's big trouble in little china from 1986
1: on hbo now my number two is from hulu netflix or prime so wow kick your poison no kidding isn't that funny it is heathers from 1988
0: Wow, I'm surprised that's on so many platforms. Okay.
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, isn't there a show coming or I it has started? I don't know. Something's happening. Okay. I remember vaguely something's about to happen or it has started. Uh, so what we have here is a young Christian Slater and a Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder is the main high school girl that we're following. She's trying to stop a... Uh, sadistic mean girls click from ruining her reputation and this takes a really dark turn because christian slater decides to help and maybe she shouldn't be having his help because his solution is to essentially kill the clique. so lots of fun go ahead and check that one out
0: yeah, that's a dark one yeah yeah Mines My... but
1: really pastel looking
0: yeah, that's so true. It's like that's true. Really,
1: like, there's a disconnect in the brain. It's awesome.
0: My second favorite film of the 80s is from 1986. It's available on Netflix. You mentioned it before, Shanna. It is An American Tale by Don Bluth, a movie that is just so absolutely gorgeous that it just makes me well up in tears. Just from the opening title sequence with the snowflake and and the score and everything you're
1: gonna make
0: me cry i'm not gonna try to make <laughs> you cry but it does have a solid soundtrack probably the best animated soundtrack pre little mermaid maybe pre oliver and company although because i am a big fan of the oliver, oliver and company animated soundtrack but um, there really wasn't much to really celebrate or draw from in terms of animated movie musicals, you know, uh, in the 80s. And, and American Tale had the best, you know, Never Say Never. Um, what's that? we were a duo somewhere out there, which was a huge radio hit, by I, the
1: way. I can't mention them because then I'll want to cry. <laughs> and, so I'll just sit here. Yeah,
0: there's just some really beautiful moments in the film as well. Emotional beats. Shanna, you alluded to one or two of them uh i just i adore this film it may be my favorite animated film of the 80s uh maybe little mermaid just edges it out yeah so it's my second favorite film of the 80s you can find it on netflix and introduce your kids to it
1: my number one is drum please is the terminator oh really of course that's number one
0: which you saw after that movie about two robots
1: thank thank you so much (laughs) we we were just talking about this recently (laughs) okay anyway (laughs) so you've talked about this already i i love this film it's it's awesome it was a great discovery for me because i thought that only number two existed so, uh, yeah, and I'm really glad that I saw number two first and then this one because this one was really special to me when I did see it. Hmm. And then I was older when I watched it. Interesting. You know, and it's like the best lovemaking scene ever. Right, yeah. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. And now you can go and grab it.
0: Now Linda Hamilton's back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite movie of the 80s ended up being the only number one that made my list. It is 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on Netflix. My favorite Indiana Jones movie. It's the one that, like, of all these films, if I were given a choice, this is the one I would gravitate to most. Partially because of the banter between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery as father and son, Mm -hmm. which is just so well written. Uh, The adventure itself with the Nazis and all the different set pieces is incomparable to any other adventure film in the 80s, incomparable to any other Indiana Jones film, really, including Raiders of the Lost Ark. This thing is just pure fun and adventure and I would argue maybe Spielberg's best film in the 80s. Oh, no, E.T., which is not available to stream. E.T.'s got to take that crown. Anyway, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is my favorite film of the 80s. I find it on Netflix. And that'll about do it for us. What are your favorites of the 80s that are available to stream right now? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Shanna, share with them where they can find you on the internet before we talk about our next episode.
1: You can find me on Instagram at shanna underscore paxton underscore photography. See you there.
0: Very cool.
1: Nice and easy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> isn't it <laughs> yes yes i i do have more you yes. do have multiple
1: platforms yes.
0: Lovely. there's the main site thegibsonreview.com you'll find the past episodes to stream directly from there as well as the best of the 2010 series and past reviews and best of the year list there go follow me on facebook the gibson review where i post links on there and third party movie news links Go to Instagram, thegibson99. I've actually been posting some polls on the Instagram stories. Feel free to uh, find me there and interact there as well. I try to keep all the posts to be movie-related posts on Instagram. Go to flickchart, Gibson 99 that same handle. You'll be able to have fun with matchups of movies and also see my list of all the movies I have seen uh, throughout time. Uh, if you want to donate, uh, throw a penny, or not a penny, hopefully a buck or two, actually, <laughs> to help offset with our a penny. costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. $1.01 to help offset our costs of going to see movies with our subscription services and running the podcast and website. Just shoot uh, money over to thegibsonreview at gmail.com on PayPal. Is there anything I'm forgetting? There's so many things to keep track of. Who knows? I don't know. But let's talk about the next episode. The next episode of The Movie Lovers. From here on out, actually, it's going to get pretty intense. Because we're at the last two months, not just of this year, but of this decade. So we're going to be wrapping up quite a few things. You might start to see during the course of November some um, occasional bonus episode here or there. But the actual episode itself... The main rev- the main event will be a review of Terminator: Dark Fate, and um, film phase will be looking at the talents of the decade. Who came out during the decade? Who shone brightly most in the decade? We'll be counting down our favorite actresses, actors, and directors in conjunction with the next articles of the Best of 2010 series. So, look for that on November 12th. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying...
1: Bye-bye.